Welcome to the Couch Potatoes. I'm Brett McGarry. This week, I will tell you about the 133 episode journey I have just completed, and wow, was it worth it? Plus, I'm Jeff Braun. I'll tell you about Nathan Fielder's hilarious new show on Crave and a compelling docu series on Netflix about one of the world's worst music festivals ever, Woodstock '99. And a stunner from Warner Brothers this week who decided to just outright cancel a big movie, even though it's almost done being made. But first, time to talk Better Call Saul, which is having a better final season than most shows could possibly dream of. And this week saw the return of some familiar faces. No details. Paying him to do a job. Let's just leave it at that. No details. Fellas, that, that money you put in my pocket, that doesn't just extend to this job. That'll get you attorney-client privilege on, on all matters. No details. And look at this setup. I mean, what, you two driving around like Mr. Softy, scooping out drugs for all the good boys and girls? No, I don't deal from here. I said no details. Dude, to stand in front of a meth lab is not like he ain't gonna put two and two together. He is on a need-to-know basis. Oh, I didn't want to show my face. Did he need to know that? It's the return of Walt and Jesse, the long-awaited cameos into Better Call Saul. We'll get to that in a bit, but first, just want to say we'll avoid major spoilers, but there will be some minor ones over the next few minutes, no doubt. So just a heads up there if you aren't yet caught up on Better Call Saul. And if you aren't, shame on you. What are you doing? I can't remember the last time I saw a final stretch of episodes like this for a show. It's been so much fun the last few weeks. We got that mid-season finale that was just absolutely jaw-dropping in the final moments. And since the show came back for its final run of six episodes it's just been banger after banger and it's also been very surprising from a narrative point of view uh the plot stuff of the main timeline that we've been watching the past uh, five plus seasons kind of wrapped up with four episodes remaining now we knew they had to shift into the breaking bad timeline of saul and they had to wrap up the black and white post breaking bad cinnabon gene timeline but i don't think we expected that to run four full episodes which we are currently in the middle of it could be clunky or inelegant to shift gears the way they have the last two episodes essentially starting up new stories at the very tail end of the series but these people know what they're doing and nearly 15 years of quality television from them has put me at ease enough that I'm just enjoying the ride. I mean, you know, they brought in Carol Burnett, for goodness sakes. I certainly wasn't expecting that. It was a delight to see her. Now there's two episodes remaining. Who knows what'll happen? I presume we'll get some significant uh, Kim Wexler screen time at some point. Her fate has been the primary question these last few months, and we do have a lot of that information now, but she hasn't been in the last two episodes at all, and I just don't see them not going back to her at some point. And of course, we now also need to wonder what Gene's ultimate fate will be. He's made some really terrible decisions the last couple of episodes, and we're kind of faced with the same questions about him that we were faced with Walt at the end of Breaking Bad. Will he live? Will he die? Will he go to jail? Will he get away clean? So those are two things up in the air with just two episodes remaining. This last week, of course, like we said at the top there, we got the return of some familiar faces in Walt and Jesse from Breaking Bad. Guest appearances we've been waiting on all season with since they announced that it would be happening. And it was sort of obvious that it was going to happen because the episode was actually titled Breaking Bad. And it showed us Saul's point of view of the events of the Breaking Bad episode that was titled Better Call Saul. So they got a little yin-yang thing going there, which is, you know, they're clever about titles. They always have been. There weren't really any bombshell moments with Walt and Jesse, but oh my goodness, these guys were throwing fastballs. The chemistry between Brian Cranston and Aaron Paul is just pure magic and instantly on display when they appeared on screen. 
Uh, we were reminded of that. I was again in awe of them. It cemented the notion that I've had that I might rewatch Breaking Bad after Better Call Saul ends. And uh, that is definitely going to happen. And in fact, I sort of had a hard time not starting the rewatch this week. But I think it would make more sense to just wait until Saul concludes in just over a week from now. But I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to that Breaking Bad rewatch. And I've just been enjoying the heck out of this final run of Better Call Saul. Brett, what do you think? It's, how, how's it been going for you? Well, I've been, I was curious the last couple of weeks because the last two episodes that have now caught up to purportedly the, the present day, or at least the present day gene that we met at the beginning of Better Call Saul, black and white Cinnabon gene slash Saul Goodman slash Jimmy. Um, but last week's episode, which was the first of the two, uh, some of the headlines, Better Call Saul finally gave us a genuinely bad episode. Better Call Saul's latest episode was the worst of the entire series. And then this week's episode, uh, one of the titles or one of the headlines was uh, Better Call Saul has gone full breaking bad. So why does it feel like punishment? And I... <laughs> Sometimes I wonder, like, am I just too soft on these shows that we watch? Because I loved Obi-Wan Kenobi and that I keep re reading repeated reviews that it, you know, of disappointment and other things that I like get sort of trashed by critics. And then I just think, no, I don't think I am. I just, I don't, I don't get why they don't just trust. Like you pointed out, these people know what they're doing. So while these two episodes feel kind of out of place, there's clearly a master plan here. So I don't really understand the criticisms. It was just, it felt different, but it, I didn't think they were bad. I was... No. Yeah, go People, ahead. People, well, I was just going to say, that, that there's the knee-jerk reaction that, oh, it's different, it must be bad. There's no, I mean, it's ironic because it was in black and white, but there's no shades of gray on the internet. Everything is either the best episode ever or the worst episode ever. And when it's different, people just tend to go negative. I, I, I tweeted out after that first all black and white episode, I said, uh, if this was, you know, 10 years ago, Lost fans would have lost their minds over this episode, would have been so upset. But with a show like Better Call Saul, it was such a well-made episode and is just his own little self-contained thing, which that was throwing people off. Sure, I get it because it had nothing really to do with the quote-unquote plot of the show, but it was a great episode and it showed it did so everything in that episode was stuff that Better Call Saul has been doing so well for all these years. It was a heist episode and it was just here are all the meticulous details that go into this heist that he was trying to pull off with these other guys. So it was, you know, if at worst, it was a standard episode of Better Call Saul. It was by no means a bad episode. I, I just think people were, they're all hopped up because we're racing towards the end and it didn't really have any forward momentum as far as the story goes, at least not an hour's worth of story. So I think people are just upset about that. But uh, this has been a show that rewards the patient viewer. And uh, I, I don't under, I'm like you, I don't understand why people wouldn't get that by now. I think there are just some dark corners of the internet that just want to, you know, crap all over anything. Yeah, and I, I also liked how it showed that he went back to this con, this heist, you know, it showed that he could, no matter how hard he tries, he just can't yes. fight his inner beast. He has to be conning somebody, and then we do see something that happens that in the latest episode that kind of pushes him over the edge because he, he tries to get in, do one more con and then walk away. And then 
And then he goes completely the other way. And he goes like he now he is breaking bad. He's, it's almost like he's becoming his own Heisenberg. And he even makes a comment about, oh, trust me, uh, you can't trust a guy with a mustache or whatever like that. Well, now right. in this present day, he's got a mustache and he seems to be turning dark. So we're, whereas I was optimistic about perhaps maybe a happy ending for this character, I really don't see that happening now after this week's episode. So, uh, yeah, I really enjoy I mean, I'm loving it. I can't wait to see how it plays out. Better Call Saul is awesome. It's on Mondays. Although it's funny, I keep forgetting that it's on Mondays. I like I get to Tuesday or I get to Wednesday and I go, oh my God, I got a Better Call Saul episode to watch. So, <laughs> uh, but it usually takes me a couple of days. There was a bit of a bombshell this week from Warner Brothers as it pertains to one of their upcoming superhero films. Details next. You are listening to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Brad He's Jeff. We are The Couch Potatoes. And some shocking news from Warner Brothers this week. The studio has axed, like, full-on canceled the Batgirl film that was planned for HBO Max. Think of it as a potential blockbuster that won't ever make it to a block near you. Warner Brothers has decided to spike the Batgirl movie it was planning for HBO Max. That means instead of releasing it on streaming or in theaters, Warner will simply eat the cost of the $90 million movie. It was to star in the height star Leslie Grace as Batgirl, and co-star Michael Keaton as Batman. This is an almost unheard of move in Hollywood. Look at it this way. Consider the worst movie you ever saw, and then think how bad studio execs felt that Batgirl must be for them to decide that it should never see the light of day. I'm Oscar Wells Gabriel. Yeah, I'm looking at one headline here from the New York Post. Irredeemable Bat- Batgirl movie gets shelved by Warner Brothers. So, yeah, this movie, it... Uh, it's already finished. They finished production on this back in April, and it was set to come out late this year, possibly next year. Uh, but I guess the test screenings did not go well, so they just decided to cancel it. So as you heard, Leslie Grace, who is uh, in The Heights, in that movie In The Heights, she was going to play Batgirl. Michael Keaton was going to return as Batman. J.K. Simmons and Brendan Fraser were also going to be in this, but they just decided to scrap it because there's a big management shift happening at Warner Brothers right now. They also canceled a movie called Scoob, a sequel for Scoob Holiday Haunt, an almost completed sequel to 2020's Scoob. So again, two movies that are basically almost done, and they decided to cancel them. And uh, Warner Brothers says that uh, they're hoping to reorganize and reset the DC pipeline. They want to go bigger, not smaller, with its rival Marvel. And they they say the more modestly scaled streaming-only Batgirl didn't suit those plans because, as we know, the DC movies have just been a mess. And uh, the latest problem, or one of their, their biggest problems right now, is The Flash, because that's supposed to come out next June, but the star, Ezra Miller, has been arrested twice this year in Hawaii in a disorderly conduct case and on suspicion of assault, and he's just, he's an outright weirdo on social media, so I wouldn't be surprised if that movie gets scrapped as well. They just, they and you just know what that over. would mean? If they end up scrapping The Flash, that, like, Michael Keaton's supposed to be Batman in that as well, so he will have returned as Batman twice and, and no one will have seen any of it except for, you know, the people who worked oh, with yeah. them on the movies. That's right. That's so, so bizarre. And it's that Flash movie that makes Michael Keaton 
being in being Batman again possible because it's the Flashpoint uh, storyline that essentially bring opens up their own version of their multiverse in the DC extended universe. So yeah, DC's yeah. kind of a mess right now. Warner Brothers, get your act together. But in the meantime, um, that's a m- movie that was canceled for HBO Max. You started watching a new show on HBO this week that you're digging. I did. It's, uh, it's been out for a couple of weeks, and I've just caught up to it. It's also streaming on Crave. It's from Nathan Fielder of Nathan For You fame, and it's called The Rehearsal. I've been told my personality can make people uncomfortable, but I've learned that if you plan for every variable, a happy outcome doesn't have to be left to chance. This conversation's going pretty well. Yes. So that's no accident. Everything that's happened today, (laughs) I've rehearsed it. Hey, hi, Nathan. Dozens of times. In a replica of your home. This is what we can do for you. You and you. You know, just off the top of my head, I would say, sure, let's go with it. This is going to be fun. Are you sure you want to do this? I don't really like lying to people. You're a liar. Yeah, neither do I. You're Willy Wonka and I'm Charlie Buckets. I'm the bad guy. In well, I'm... but he's a dream maker. Okay. And you're doing, you're making some dreams happen but for me. But kids died in the factory. Well, they supposedly died. I... I'll, I'll read the book again just to to, to look into it. The rehearsal is bananas in the best way. If you ever saw his previous show, Nathan For You, you'll have an idea of the kind of humor to expect. That was a show where he would go around to small businesses and come up with weird ideas on how to help them. Like uh, he, he got a pizza joint to have a promotion that guaranteed eight-minute delivery or a free pizza. The promotion would bring in the calls, of course, but the eight minutes was not possible, obviously. The hook, though, was that the free pizza was only one inch in diameter. So it's stuff like that. And then the comedy, of course, mostly comes from people's reactions and Nathan's deadest of deadpan performance through the whole thing. He's kind of like a really dialed down Borat. Uh, He's just, you know, Borat's big and crazy and this guy's just a regular nondescript guy. He's messing with real people out in the world though and we are entertained. And now with his show, The Rehearsal, he's taking things to a whole new level. I'm going to describe it as best I can, but it just pales in comparison to seeing the real thing. In the rehearsal, Fielder finds people who have been avoiding a confrontation or a situation in their lives, and he helps them practice it ahead of time so they can figure out how best to manage the scenario when it really happens, and then he sends them off for the real thing, and of course he films it all. For example, in the first episode, he finds this guy who's been telling a little lie to his friends, not a huge lie, He's been, but he's been saying that he has a master's degree when he really only has a bachelor's degree, but this guy's also afraid of how one person in his peer group will react when she finds out. So Nathan sets up a rehearsal. This entails hiring actors, including a woman to play the friend the main guy is worried about. And they go through the difficult conversation, working through what they and Nathan believe would be all the different possible scenarios. And they try to figure out the best way to guide that conversation to achieve the desired result. They build sets, including an exact replica of the little bar the confrontation will take place in. Extras are hired to be the patrons. The details are just astonishing. He also hires other actors to seek out uh, the woman in the real world to have interactions with her just in the hopes of gaining more knowledge about her and how she might react. So it's got hidden camera spy stuff. It's Borat level messing with people who don't really realize it kind of stuff. It's just amazing. And most importantly, though, it's hilarious. I've watched uh, the three episodes that are out already. There's a fourth one out this weekend and I've died laughing each time. 
Again, me trying to talk about it is almost pointless. You really have to see it to believe it. You'll realize pretty quickly whether or not it's for you. I am all in. And after I watched the three episodes of the rehearsal, I did dive straight into Nathan For You, his old series, which is available all four seasons on Crave. It had been on my list for quite some time, years actually, and I just never got around to it until this week. I tore through the first season in two days. It's only eight episodes, and I got three more to go. So if you've not been introduced to the weird, wild world of Nathan Fielder, you should definitely check it out. The rehearsal airs Fridays on HBO and Crave. Okay, might have to check that out. And also, just while I think about this off the top of my head, uh, another show, if you're watching Better Call Saul, you may have seen the commercials on AMC for this new sci-fi show called Moonhaven, and some of the reviews are saying it's the best sci-fi show in years, and it's like a buddy cop sci-fi, the show that we didn't know that we needed. It's only on AMC Plus in the States, but in Canada, it's available on Prime Video. So it looks like it's a new episode every week, and those episodes air on Fridays, I believe, in the U.S. Up next, the show that took me a while to binge. I'm not quite the binger that Jeff Braun is, but I got through it, all 133 episodes. Details next. You're listening to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Brett, he's Jeff, we are the Couch Potatoes. I've mentioned it a couple of times in recent weeks that I started watching a show lately, seven seasons worth, but I've made it to the finish line and it was terrific. Let me tell you about Star Wars The Clone Wars. Weapons do not win battles. Your mind, powerful it is. Now you fall, as all Jedi must. And my stars. We need you, Anakin. That was impressive. Cartoon Network is proud to present Star Wars The Clone Wars. With a new adventure every week, their galaxy isn't far, far away anymore. This fall, the Force will be with you. That's my master. Roger, 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 Roger. Seven seasons, 133 episodes on Disney+, Plus. so just indulge my nerdiness for a few moments here. First, why did I finally start watching this? Well, my love of Star Wars has been reinvigorated by Disney+, Plus since late 2019, with the launch of the Mandalorian series, which was my introduction to the Jedi, named Ahsoka Tano, and to the Mandalorian character Bo-Katan and her fellow Mandalorian warriors, both of whom we see a lot of in the Clone Wars series. Also, the more recent Obi-Wan Kenobi limited series made me want to further explore the friendship between the Jedi Knights, Anakin Skywalker, and his master, Obi-Wan Kenobi. Their friendship, in case you need reminding, is shattered when Anakin turns to the dark side and becomes Darth Vader. And last year, I watched the first season of their newer cartoon, The Bad Batch, which is about, uh, shall we say, a unique troop of clones. And I knew that they were featured in the Clone Wars. So I've just, I've always wanted to watch the series, never got around to it, finally did. Second, if you're a Star Wars fan, I should point out The Clone Wars is not a must watch. It will certainly enhance your Star Wars experience since you'll learn so much more about the aforementioned Ahsoka and the relationship between Anakin and Obi-Wan, but it's not a must-watch. And like I said, it's a big commitment. Seven seasons, 133 episodes. They're all mostly between 20 to 25 minutes, so not super long, but uh, the last four episodes of the series are closer to 30 minutes each. There are cheat sheets, by the way, out there on Google on which episodes are the important episodes. Like if you wanted to watch it but didn't want to watch all of them, because there are a lot of one-off episodes. Some of them are boring, etc., kind of pointless. Uh, so there 
there are cheats around that. Warning, I will have some spoilers, but I mean, at this point, it's talking about a series that ended two years ago. A spoiler? I, I don't know. Plus, I already knew a lot of the stuff that happened in the series anyway from YouTube videos, and we know this series does not have a happy ending. What is The Clone Wars? Takes place between Star Wars Episode 2, Attack of the Clones, and Episode 3, Revenge of the Sith. It actually started with an animated feature film in 2008, which I did not rewatch now that I think of it, although maybe I should do that so I will feel complete. Then in 2008, the series uh, aired for five seasons on the Cartoon Network in the U.S. before it was canceled, but a sixth season ended up coming out in 2014 on Netflix, and then nothing. For six years, until 2020, when Disney released the seventh and final season. And uh, I loved it, the whole thing. Yeah, there were a few silly episodes, a few seemingly pointless episodes, but they are mostly good episodes, and the final four episodes are essentially a movie, and I would call it one of the best Star Wars movies there is. On an overall level, it was fun. It had tremendous action, great animation, which of course got better and better every season, and they were able to take us to worlds that even with the CGI they have today, still would have been really difficult. So to see it in this format, uh, where it was easier for them to do it, that was cool. And it just completely fleshed out the Clone Wars. Like, it was otherwise just a blip in our imagination in that very first Star Wars back in 1977, like when Princess Leia said this. General Kenobi, years ago you served my father in the Clone Wars. And then Luke Skywalker and Obi-Wan had this exchange. No, my father didn't fight in the wars. He was a navigator on a spice freighter. That's what your uncle told you. He didn't hold with your father's ideals, thought he should have stayed here and not gotten involved. You fought in the Clone Wars? Yes. I was once a Jedi Knight, the same as your father. I wish I'd known him. He was the best star pilot in the galaxy. And a cunning warrior. I understand you've become quite a good pilot yourself. And he was a good friend. And that's it. For years, we could only imagine what the Clone Wars even were, what a young Anakin Skywalker was like. What was the friendship like between Anakin and Obi-Wan? We got to see some of it in the prequel movies, no doubt, but this series takes us deep into the Clone Wars. Now, on a more specific level, here are the things I loved about this show. One, the friendship between Anakin and Obi-Wan, which further underscores the tragic destruction of said friendship and Anakin's tragic fall to the dark side to become Darth Vader, the ultimate bad guy. We saw glimpses in the movie, particularly episode three, of how well the two Jedis worked together, of how they would chirp at each other. In episode two, Anakin was still very young and very much the Padawan learner, but in episode three, he was now a Jedi Knight fighting alongside his master. As a general in the Clone Wars, it was clear they had been through a lot together, but what? The Clone Wars series takes us on adventure after adventure, many of them with Anakin and Obi-Wan working side by side, constantly razzing each other, by the way, in spite of the impending doom, with a clear understanding these two men cared about each other deeply. So to see that all fall apart and to then revisit it in the Obi-Wan Kenobi series where a young Darth Vader still hates Obi-Wan, it's just so sad. Two, Anakin himself he was referred to in that clip as a cunning warrior. Heck yeah, he was, but he wasn't just a great warrior. He was a great leader who was always at the front of the pack alongside his clone troopers. He really cared for them. He was kind and compassionate to them. And he was kind and compassionate to the droids. Through this series, we learned that many of the Jedi are, quite frankly, ice-cold jerks who don't care about droids. They don't care about clones. They don't really care about anyone. It's frustrating. 
They're supposed to be the guardians of the galaxy. And it's one small part of the reason why Anakin eventually turns because he sees these things that he doesn't like. And he just, he feels too deeply. He's too kind. He's too compassionate, at least for a Jedi. It's his emotions that eventually turn him to the dark side. He still has a bit of a chip on his shoulder through this series. And he also has explosive anger inside him still, particularly when it comes to Padme Amidala, his wife. There's a two-episode arc in one of the, the later seasons where he's basically a raging lunatic. His fear of abandonment, his fear of loss, dangerous emotions, as Yoda has stated before. Also, not only does he care for his master, care for his troopers, care for his droids, care for his wife, for whom he's very jealous. Uh, he also cares deeply for his apprentice, Ahsoka Tano. And that leads to the third thing I loved about this. Ahsoka Tano! My introduction to her was The Mandalorian Season 2. Well, I guess I had seen her back in that 2008 movie, but I don't remember anything about that movie. So for all intents and purposes, Rosario Dawson playing Ahsoka was my introduction. And the live-action version is awesome. She's perfectly cast. She looks just like young Ahsoka. The cartoon version, even better. She's an amazing character, also a cunning and brave warrior. She's a smart Alec, but not annoyingly so. And she has the best character traits that Anakin has without his weaknesses. She's kind, she's compassionate, she's brave, but she's not angry like him. And she knows when to walk away. And in a series, in a way, this series is very much her series, particularly in the final season. Four, Darth Maul. Yes, he lives. Not entirely sure how, considering Obi-Wan cut him in half in the, the end of the first episode. But he lives, and he's developed into an actual character here. Because in that movie, episode one, The Phantom Menace, he was cool as the Sith apprentice. But he almost had no dialogue. He was basically just an attack dog. He looked awesome, and then Obi-Wan kills him. Or so we thought. He's not in the series the whole way through, but he does have some huge moments. And he is vital to the final season. Five... Droids! We get a couple of fun episodes with C-3PO and R2-D2, but we get lots of R2-D2, and it never ceases to amaze me how that little droid, who just bleeps and bloops, has more personality than most of the characters in Star Wars. He just makes me smile and laugh constantly. And, la well, this is almost lastly, certainly not least, the clones. In the movie... We didn't get to know them, any of them, not really. We got to learn a couple of their names, like Cody. But in this, in this one, we get to know many of them, including Captain Rex, who is as important a character as any in this show. And he goes on to be important in the Bad Batch series as well. These are men who are bred for the sole purpose of fighting for and dying for the Republic. And they do it with a smile. But we learn that they are still men. Their names might be CT5767 or whatever. But they all have names like that they give each other. Like Rex or Fives or Tup or Echo or whatever. They fight for each other. They care about each other. And there's some really touching stuff, including just a a fabulous tribute to Ahsoka in the final season. And the importance of all this is that it reminds us, I mean, hey, it's right in the name, Star Wars. This is a story about war, and wars have casualties. And in this saga, the number of casualties is just unthinkable. The final season, the first four episodes of season seven introduced us to the Bad Batch, so it was basically Disney's way of launching a new show. But it worked, and it worked well. The next four episodes were kind of boring. It was about Ahsoka helping a couple of young women who lived in the underlevels of Coruscant after they get in over their heads. But those episodes served a purpose. They showed Ahsoka what normal people have to do just to get by, and they showed her what a lot of normal people think of the Jedi. Not everyone thinks the Jedi are the righteous saviors they think they are. Much of the galaxy hates the Jedi, and she needed to learn 
learn that and see that to help her in her story arc. But yeah, those final four episodes, man, they were special, exciting, great storytelling, awesome action. And it's extra special because this is where the series catches up to episode three and the timelines eventually meet and are happening in lockstep. So we get to see the execution of Order 66, the extermination of the Jedi happen from different perspectives. And that's really cool, but also really tragic. It's just an emotionally powerful two hours that ends with a beautifully haunting scene. Also worth noting that final season has a 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. So look, Disney has blown a lot of what they've done with Star Wars, but they nailed it with that final season. And overall, it's a great show. Probably doesn't need to be 133 episodes, but there is a lot of great storytelling along the way that has massively enhanced my Star Wars experience for the better. So I'm going to give this series four couch cushions out of five. Now I have to watch four seasons of Star Wars Rebels because Ahsoka eventually meets her former master, Darth Vader, in combat. Looking forward to seeing that. You are listening to The Couch Potatoes. Welcome back to the Couch Potatoes. I'm Jeff, he's Brett, and for the second time in as many years, there's a new documentary out about Woodstock 99. Woodstock 99. It was going to be the biggest party on the planet, but that's not what any of us remember it for. What the hell happened? Once you become part of our herd, you become like animals. Things are just getting out of control. And all of these people were acting like animals. We got fires everywhere. Look at this. Kerosene, match, boom. Trainwreck Woodstock 99 comes to us from Netflix. It's a three-episode docu-series looking back at what should have been an awesome music festival at the end of the millennium, but instead was some absolute train wreck. Woodstock 99 saw insanely large crowds. We're talking a quarter of a million people growing more and more unruly through the weekend until things devolved into a full-blown riot on the last night with widespread damage and fires getting to the point where the National Guard had to come in and break it up. If it sounds familiar, it's because last year there was an HBO documentary film about Woodstock 99, and the two are quite similar in many respects, obviously, although this new Netflix version is longer. Like I said, three episodes. They're each about 45 minutes long, making it about two hours and 15 minutes altogether. The HBO documentary was under two hours. The HBO doc is terrific, by the way. It's on Crave if you want to check that out. And this new Netflix series is also terrific. I think it's probably even a little bit better. It seems like they had more access to the people who put on the festival. Both docs talked to the organizers, including the late Michael Lang, who also organized the original Woodstock in 1969. And while that HBO doc focused more on the toxic masculinity on display and the role it played in the disaster, this Netflix series focuses more on how ill-prepared the organizers were and the just plain awful decisions made beforehand and during the festival weekend. It's described as a perfect storm starting with the location. The first Woodstock, you know, was held on a big open field with a hill for the spectators on grass surrounded by trees. Woodstock 99, on the other hand, was held on a decommissioned Air Force base, which was mostly concrete and asphalt with no cover or shade. And when the sun started blazing, and boy did it ever, the concert goers simply couldn't get any respite from it. Add to that infrastructure issues with water fountains that didn't work, bottled water being sold at insane markups, 
$4 a bottle back in 99, being sold to kids who didn't even know they had to bring a small fortune to pay for stuff like that. And, uh, you know, compounded with the fact that all the food and water that people were trying to bring into the party was confiscated at their at the doors on their way in. So they were forced to pay for the water. Uh, a couple of days of that, dehydration, the feeling of being ripped off, and, you know, the intense lineup of bands, you know, spells trouble. One guy rightfully notes in the in the doc that you can't, you know, you can't blame Limp Biscuit for being Limp Biscuit. But another guy noted how a lineup featuring Limp Biscuit, Rage Against the Machine, Corn, and Metallica, you know, these are not your peace and love folk music bands like the original Woodstock featured. So the bands were kind of somewhat unwittingly riling up a crowd that was already on the brink. And then there was the fact that there wasn't nearly enough security and the security guards that were there were mostly not at all trained for the situation. And after a day or so, all the troublemakers in the crowd kind of realized, yeah, we can pretty much do whatever we want and there aren't any repercussions. The one thing this documentary has that I don't remember the HBO documentary having was footage from the festival employees themselves not the organizers, but the young people who were the boots on the ground doing all the work. A lot of them are interviewed in the present day. A lot of them had video camera footage from the festival itself. I also talked to a handful of fans who were there, several of whom literally say they feared for their lives at points, but then also go on to say at the end, you know, it was an awesome weekend altogether. Pretty wild stuff, all in all. I'm not sure what interest it might have for those who you know, aren't of that era. I was enthralled by it, but I was also 23 years old in 1999. And frankly, if the festival had been nearby, I probably would have gone. I presume I would have been scared enough after the second night to have just left, which seems to be what most people with any measurable amount of common sense did, meaning the Sunday was even more of a powder keg than it otherwise would have been. So the docus, uh, this docuseries definitely worth a watch. It's called Trainwreck Woodstock 99, and it's out right now on Netflix. That's all the time we've got. I'm Brett. He's Jeff. We are the Couch Potatoes. Subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. And remember, if it requires getting up off the couch, don't bother. Don't bother.